We continue our series uh, in Philippians uh, this week. It's a series titled Partners in Grace. It's an eight-week series, and we're kind of in the, in the middle of it somewhere, working our way straight through the letter. Um, and if, if you recall, if you've been engaging this, we're trying to keep in mind the special relationship that existed between Paul and the church in Philippi. They were, they, they were more than just a, a church that he planted. They had really become friends. And he, he referred to their partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And that partnership was less like, you know, business contract, uh, business partner kind of thing, and much more like spiritual family. They had a friendship. They had fellowship around the message of Jesus, and, and they functioned like a spiritual family, and Paul something, functioned as something of a spiritual father uh, to them in, in that role. And today we take up uh, really what is a famous passage of Scripture, including this portion in the middle known as the Christ hymn of Philippians 2. It's a call to follow Jesus by imitating his humility so as to live in unity with other Christians. And uh, before we listen to the scripture, let me pray for us. God, we want to be open uh, to what you have to say today, so pour out your spirit on us. Help me as I, as I speak. Help us as we listen to your word. Uh, we want to know you better, Jesus, and follow you more faithfully. Uh, so we commit ourselves to you to that end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, indeed, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Randy. Well, you know, they say that uh, public speakers should uh, tell people what they're going to say and then say it and tell people what they said. So let me try that. What to do, how to do it, and why to do it. That's what Paul gives us. What to do, live in unity with other Christians. How to do it, hold power loosely for the sake of others. Why should we do it? 
because humility is the most distinctive characteristic of Jesus. What to do, how to do it, why we should. Now the passage starts with uh, the word therefore, and as you know, whenever there's a therefore, we need to look back at what came before because what comes next is the natural conclusion or the logical conclusion of what came before. And Pastor Brian preached it last week in a, in a fantastic message, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. So the logic of today's passage builds on, on that calling to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy. And the logic of today's verse starts with this. If we're to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, then we will live in unity because unity is the hallmark of the gospel. And unity happens when people live together in humility. And Christians do that because Jesus modeled it and helps us by his spirit. And here's how the passage starts. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Therefore, if you have any, don't miss what Paul's saying, the appeal here is to the most minuscule presence of any of these things. You don't need a lot of this stuff. In fact, you don't even need a little of this stuff. If you have any of it, any tiny little shred, Paul says the natural end, what we should strive for from that is unity in the church. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, um, if you're a follower of Jesus, and I don't want to assume that all of us are, but if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, think, think back on those moments of greatest spiritual clarity. You know, we need to remember those times. You need to remember, remember the light to get through the darkness sometimes. Those moments of greatest spiritual clarity. Maybe, maybe it was a time when your faith was, was almost like knowledge. It didn't feel like you had to trust in darkness. You, you almost had knowledge that God loves you, that you are a child of God for real. That is who you are. You know, that the spirit resides within you for real. That wasn't a distant idea, but a present reality for you in that moment. You knew that you knew it. That's encouragement from being united with Christ, and if there's any of it, we ought to live in unity. If you have any comfort from the love of Jesus, man, what Christian hasn't taken comfort from knowing that God loved us that much that he wouldn't just live for us, but die for us and live again for us because he loves us too much to allow us to remain as we are. If you have any comfort from his love, if you have any Sharing in the Spirit. You know, ever sense the presence of the Spirit in your life or a, or a kind of family-likeness bond with another believer somewhere, maybe whom you've never met, but, but you felt that bond of sharing in the Spirit. If you have any tenderness and compassion, I, I didn't go deep on this, week, on this idea this week, but I, I kind of found myself wondering if this might be even a less a kind of specific Christian experience and more an appeal to God's common grace in the world. If you have any tenderness and compassion, even those things come from God and ought to drive one toward a life of unity in the world. 
If you have any of these things, Paul says, make my joy complete. Now remember Paul's situation in life when he was writing this? He's in a Roman prison. He's on the back end of five years of life lost to being imprisoned on trumped up charges. And he can write, make my joy complete. So even in that situation, his joy was almost complete. But what would put it over the top was to hear that churches he planted were living in deep unity. And he, and he thin slices that. But what I mean by that is he gives us detail. He doesn't just say unity. He describes what, what unity looks like. See, that unity has three aspects, uh, uh, Paul says. Being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and being of one mind. That's the same word as that being like-minded. Being like-minded. In, in the original language, the, refer, the word refers to a unity of thinking, uh, holding a similar opinion to that of others, setting one's mind similarly, having a similar attitude. And, and in the church, that's less about the, the everyday details of life, that all of our thinking is the same, and, and more about the central claims of the gospel. It's a unity of thinking with regard to what Jesus has done in the world and what's going on in the world right now with God and, and, and our lives and where we fit in and all of that. It's a unity of thinking in that regard. And it's super important because when the Bible talks about repentance, remember, it's, it's about more than simply uh, confessing to God the things we know we've done wrong. It's a piece of it. That's, that's a piece of it for sure. But biblical repentance refers to a change of thinking about God, the world, and our lives. So you have unity in the church where there's similarity of thinking with regard to who God is and what he's done, what's happening in the world right now, really, and who we are in Christ. Being like-minded, having the same love. Remember, the biblical word for love, agape, is not a, a feeling. It, it's not an experience. It's an action. Agape is the active love of God for his son and his people and the active love his people are to have for God, each other, and even enemies. You know, it's not a feeling. It's not an experience. Biblical love is taking action on behalf of other people. Somehow giving of yourself for them, for their benefit, for their good, for their blessing. It can happen in huge ways like Jesus dying on the cross for us, the supreme example of this self-giving love. It can happen in little tiny ways when a person comes up to you and is engaging you in a conversation and a big part of you is thinking, I really don't want to be having this conversation right now. But you hang in and you're patient and you give of yourself to listen to them, to bless them. Right? Having the same love being one in spirit means being united spiritually, in, in harmony spiritually as a body is what it means. And then Paul refers, returns to that same word, being of one mind, the same word as, as like-minded. So in his definition of unity, Paul begins and ends with our thinking, what's going on in our heads. To be of one mind, Christians have to be all repented up. You know, thinking aligned according to the gospel. Not unanimity. Not uniformity. Unity in the claims of the gospel about us and the world. The Apostle Paul in Romans 
put it a different way. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So, a life worthy of the gospel, conduct in, in, in harmony with the gospel, which we profess, is a life of unity with other followers of Jesus that's marked by having the same thinking about the truths of the gospel. That's it. That's what we should do. Being of one mind, have the same act of love, demonstrate a harmonious spirit within the church. This isn't just what we should do. It's a witness to the world. But it's also the, the natural and predictable outcome of coming to trust Jesus because this charts the trajectory of the work of the Holy Spirit in any individual's life. You know, we know the fruit of the Spirit as described in Galatians 5. So when the Holy Spirit starts working on you, you will become a more humble person if you allow the Holy Spirit to work on you. That's my biggest problem, not getting in the way of what God's doing in my life, right? So what to do? Live in unity. But how do you do that? Does Paul say anything about how to do that? It's, it's one thing to think about it, even to believe it. Something very different to do it. What's the, what's the skill training on this? What's the cream off the top, the, the best practice for enacting this in, in our lives? Gladly, Paul gives us the secret. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Do nothing, do not one thing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Aristotle used that same Greek word that's translated selfish ambition to refer to self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. It's cheating to get ahead. Paul says, don't do that. Uh, not only because it's not fair for other people, it's spiritual poison for you. It, it doesn't lead down the road it promises. Vain conceit, meaning an inflated and thus inaccurate assessment of self, thinking way more of me than is due, right? Rather, here's the secret, Paul says, to living in unity. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Could there be a message that is more countercultural? Value others above yourselves. Don't watch out for your own interests, but watch out for the interests of others. I was a, a business major when in college. I came to Christ as a senior in college, so I wasn't even thinking ministry back then. Um, and so I kind of tracked with business books, and some business people will remember Jim Collins' kind of big book, Good to Great. It's about 20 years old now. But in, in this book, it's a research-based book about business leadership, and they identified five levels of leadership, level one, two, three, four, five, five being the most effective and productive kind of level of leadership. And after all sorts of research, they determined that the 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 characteristic that distinguished a level five leader from a level four leader was, you know what I'm going to say, humility. And at the end of the day, that was the only difference between level five leaders and level four leaders. And the very first time I heard that point, I, I thought of this passage 
I still remember when I first heard that. And I've always wondered, and this is just me wondering now, this isn't a, like a biblical truth or anything. I, I've always wondered if the reason the best leaders in, in the secular world are marked by humility is because they're somehow, either knowingly or unknowingly, functioning more in line with who God made them to be and, and engaging with people around them um, it, it, more in line with how God created the world to work. I'm just wondering. In 2018, another business writer named John Dixon released a book titled Humilitas, A Lost Key to Life, Love, and Leadership. I haven't read the book, but I found the summary intriguing. This is from Amazon. Humility, or holding power loosely for the sake of others, is sorely lacking in today's world. Through the lessons of history, business, and the social sciences, author John Dixon shows that humility is not low self-esteem, groveling, or losing our distinct gifts. Instead, humility both recognizes our inherent worth and seeks to use whatever power we have at our disposal on behalf of others. Some of the world's most inspiring and influential players have been people of immense humility. By embracing this virtue, we will transform the good for good, the unique contributions we each make to the world. That sounds like a Sunday school class, doesn't it? And that's a description of this business book. I mean, the description of humility is spot on. I found myself getting super excited about this because this could be an entire series. Uh, the Old Testament, our biblical tradition, is absolutely loaded with commentary on how followers of God use their power. Loaded with it. And humility is holding power loosely for the sake of others. Humility is choosing not to leverage whatever power we might have for our own good, but instead using it on behalf of others to love them actively by valuing them above ourselves and watching out for their interests. That's all theoretical. What does that look like on Monday morning? It means we're thinking. How might my words land on a person experiencing this situation from this perspective? Huh, I wonder how that group of people is experiencing what's happening in our community right now. It, it's that. It, it gets in you. The Holy Spirit will put this in you and you start becoming more and more other-centered. I wonder, I wonder. And by the way, you become more curious because there's a lot more wondering than getting angry. And for me, that has been a redemptive process. I wonder what's going on in them. What to do? live in unity with other Christians, how to do it, hold power loosely for the sake of other people. Now, why? Why should we do this? Because humility is the most distinctive characteristic of Jesus. Have you ever pondered that? Somebody asked you that question. What is the most distinctive characteristic of Jesus? I, I think this, this passage tells us that humility is that thing. Look at, look at what Paul writes. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, same Greek word, by the way, like-minded, be of one mind, same word here, mindset, as Christ Jesus. Except this time, 
the, the word isn't applied to Christians having the same thinking, same gospel thinking about God, the world, and ourselves. This calls all of us as followers of Jesus to have the same thinking as Jesus had. To align our minds and thinking to that of Jesus. I mean, this is amazing. To, to hold the same opinion as Jesus. To set our minds like Jesus did, to think of other people like Jesus did, to have the same attitude that Jesus had. And Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. There's the power thing, right? He's not using his power as God for his own advantage. He's using it on behalf of others. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You know, even though Jesus was in very nature God, he held his power loosely on behalf of others. The most distinctive characteristic of Jesus. Think about it. But for Jesus' humility, but for Jesus' willingness to hold his power loosely for the sake of others, we wouldn't have a gospel because we wouldn't have had an incarnation, let alone a substitutionary death on the cross, a resurrection, an ascension, and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. With no divine humility, there's no gospel. There's no salvation. There's no hope. And there is no life. That's how big a deal this is. Jesus did not use his power to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself is what the word actually says. And we won't dive deep there. There's been a whole boatload of theologizing about what this word actually means. How exactly did Jesus empty himself? Did he leave behind all of his divine attributes when he became human? Or did he just simply empty himself of some of them for a period of time? The verses don't tell us the answer exactly. But this seems clear. The emptying was the opposite of Jesus using his power to his own advantage. The emptying was in opposition to using his power as God for himself. See, the emptying involved a powering down, not a powering up. It involved a giving away of self, not a a getting for self. It was geared to serve others not to be served by them. And it culminated in even an emptying of his earthly life as Jesus breathed his last on the cross. Really, now, look for yourselves. Scour the religions and philosophies of this world. Go to school on the varieties of spiritual belief. Get a doctoral degree in comparative religion you will not find anywhere in any faith a vision of God or deity as humble and self-giving as that of these verses. As far as I know, the best you'll find is kind of a nonchalant deity who has a kind of live and let live posture. And like, hey, it doesn't really matter. 
That's the best you get. But the gospel is about God sacrificing himself on behalf of the people he created and the world he made. Jesus humbled himself. No one made him do it. No one did it for him. His was a consenting, willing sacrifice. And that is a huge, ginormous deal. Here's why. Best spoken by commentator Alec Motier. All through the long years of animal sacrifice, the Lord had driven home the lesson that in the divine purposes, there could be a transference of sin and guilt from the head of the guilty to the head of the innocent. Whenever a sinner brought his animal to the altar and laid his hand on the beast's head, the lesson was plain. This stands in my place. This bears my sin. Yet the substitution was incomplete. For the central citadel of sin, the will, was left unrepresented in the uncomprehending, unconsenting animal. Isaiah foresaw that only a perfect man could be the perfect substitute and that at the heart of this perfection lay a will delighting to do the will of God. This was the mind of Christ. He looked at himself, at his father, and at us, and for obedience sake and sinner's sake, he held nothing back. Wow! Jesus chose this for you and for me. His was a consenting, willing sacrifice. And he held nothing back. You know, we get just one life to give ourselves over fully to the one who held nothing back for us. We get just the one life. Turn to Jesus. Wherever you are right now, whatever you're thinking, the invitation is to change your thinking, to align with the claims of Jesus and the message of the gospel, to believe that good news and to change your life by following Jesus in his humility. And I promise you, that will change your life. We don't do it in our own power, of course. God helps us, but that is life-changing. We live in unity in the church when we value others over ourselves and watch out for the interests of others more than looking out for ourselves. The way to do that is to hold power loosely for the sake of others just like Jesus did. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your example. Thank you for what you have done for us. Choosing on your own behalf to humble yourself, willingly sacrificing yourself on our behalf. And God, this day, we cling to the great truth that that is much more than simply a, a philosophical religious claim. The claim is historic. And we look to you, Lord Jesus, your cross pinned to the timeline of history and your resurrection as real as the person sitting next to us. Help us to trust you. Help us to turn to you. 
We pray in your name. Amen.